One of the most important men I have ever met in my life was a retired farmer from my hometown, Ashland, Illinois, population 1,250 people. He was one of my best friend's grandpas. His name was Billy Blair. And he taught us a lot of stuff that we wouldn't have learned otherwise. Some of it was good, and some of it we probably didn't need to know, but he taught us anyway. But the most important thing that Billy taught me was how to be a good husband. You see, his wife Chrissy, by all accounts, was a wonderful woman herself, but I don't remember Chrissy uh, very clearly because from the time I got to know Billy when I was in high school, um, she had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's and was about five years into that diagnosis. She often thought she was a little girl and would wander off and get lost, and they'd have to call up all the, the whole fertilizer company to go look for her all over town and through the country. It'd take dozens of people to find her sometimes. But Billy always loved her and took care of her. I want to be clear, not every spouse can or should take care of their husband or wife who has dementia or Alzheimer's, but Billy was able to do so, and so he did. But even more than just choosing to take care of her, he chose to do so in an amazingly loving and caring way. He was one of the most patient men I've ever met. Even when she would say some things that would be very embarrassing, Billy would just quietly smile, give us a wink, and keep showing her love. Most remarkably, Billy cared for Chrissy for 15 years after her Alzheimer's diagnosis. And seemingly always showing that trademark patience and care for her up until the day, up through the day that she died, setting an example for our entire community. Now, I could argue with you that Billy even made it look easy. But for those of us who were close to Billy, we knew that it was anything but easy. It was extremely difficult. But here's the deal. Marriage is hard. Let me say that again. Marriage is hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some of you were afraid of getting elbowed in the ribs is what happened there, wasn't it? Even the best marriages have times that seem next to impossible. But how we conduct ourselves in marriage is vitally important to Christian witness. In fact, when Paul, a single guy, describes Ephesians 5.25, he instructs husbands by saying this, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Another translation says, and died for her. And I like that translation because the reality is, is that in marriage, this is what it comes to, is our willingness to lay down our lives for each other. If you're not willing to lay down your life for your spouse, you're probably going to wind up trying to kill him anyway. So, oh, come on, come on. <laughs> so, as, as, as we talk about uh, the all-in family from Mark the 10th chapter today, um, I, I want to talk about the family who demonstrates Christ primarily through marriage. And so, as we dive in here today, I recognize that many of us here have experienced the pain of divorce or are in the midst of an extremely difficult marriage. And we have no desire to condemn you. We only have the desire to share the hope of Christ with you. And the reality is, is that even if that's been your experience, the pain that you've gone through, the reality is, is that God can work through your experience in a mighty way 
not only to bring healing to yourself, but also to others. And so let's talk about the difficult side of marriage. Some of the hardest things about marriage. Well, first, there's expectations. And the parallel passage in, uh, in Matthew, the, uh, the 19th chapter, um, we see that Matthew, uh, Jesus actually talks about the idea of singleness as something that is very sacred. Since Mark doesn't talk about it here, I will bring it up here briefly. But Paul doubles down on the teachings of Jesus and encourages people that if they can, to remain single so that they can be more fully devoted to Christ through service, so that they can do things for Christ that maybe they couldn't do if they were married or had children or both. Unfortunately, in the church today, we tend to push marriage really hard instead of simply saying that God has called some people to be single and they can be amazingly used by God as single people. And when I travel overseas, I've met lots of people who have relocated overseas uh, and they were able to do so because of their decision to remain single. And as a result, have been remarkably used by God. And I see the same thing happen stateside. And so whether you are single for a season or single for life, you can not only be faithful to God, but you can be remarkably used by God for His kingdom purposes. And frankly, some of the conversations that we have in our culture today we have such a high view on marriage, but we don't have a high view on singleness in the church. And that needs to change. Because God can use single people in an amazing way. And we need to uphold that and honor that and not pressure our kids into getting marriage and also not buy into the idea that everyone needs sexual fulfillment in life. The reality is, if you're searching for your identity in sexuality, you're never going to find it. Okay, so let's transition. Now that we've seen the first tough thing about marriage is the expectations, let's look to the text here in Mark chapter 10, verse 1. He set out from there and went to the region of Judea across the Jordan. Then crowds converged on him again, and as was his custom, he taught them again. Some of the Pharisees came to Jesus to test him. They were asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, there's a couple of different things that could be going on here culturally, and it's important for us to understand this, because Jesus isn't necessarily giving an all-in, everything is understood about divorce through this one passage, marriage and divorce. But what he is doing is he's responding to, to a couple different cultural situations. The first is, if you remember King Herod, who was like, kind of like half Jewish, but he was really, uh, really just the puppet of Rome. King Herod had basically fallen in love with his brother's wife, which is a really bad idea. Don't ever do that, okay? Um, and as a result, he talked his brother's wife into divorcing his brother so that King Herod could marry her. And so part of what they're asking here is, hey, is what King Herod did, is that okay? And part of the reason they're asking that, of course, is because they want to get Jesus in trouble. You remember John the Baptist spoke out about this, and that ended up being part of the reason why John the Baptist lost his head over the deal. And so they are trying to get Jesus in trouble. The other thing that's going on here is there were two different schools of thought within Judaism. One school of thought, you can just view it like, you know, like a conservative or a liberal view kind of thing, kind of issue. Uh, one, one view said you can divorce if you're a man. Of course, women couldn't divorce. But if you're a man, you can divorce your woman for, for any, your wife for any and every reason. Literally, one of the commentators said, if she burns the toast, that can be grounds for divorce. Now, women, 
if, if your husband complains about you burning the toast, you have my permission to butter that toast up real good, put some jam on that, and just go ahead and just, just, just toss it his way and make him wear that, okay? But literally, that's what they said. There was another school of thought, however, that said, no, 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 a man cannot divorce his wife unless she is sexually unfaithful, unless there's adultery that's involved. And so they're asking Jesus for his side of things on here. What does he believe about marriage? And so we see Jesus replies to them, as he often does, with the question, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses committed, or permitted us to write divorce papers and to send her away. But then later on in the text, in verse 10, Jesus says, when they were in the house with the disciples again, the disciples questioned him of Jesus about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. Also, if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And so the second thing that we see is the hardest, one of the hardest aspects of marriage is the idea of covenant. The idea of a covenant is a lifelong commitment to someone else. God is a covenant God. He makes a covenant with us. He established a new covenant with us through Jesus Christ. And as He established that covenant in His grace, that is not a covenant that goes away. It is a permanent commitment to us as His people. And God wants us to be a covenant people as well. And a husband and wife relationship to be deeply committed to each other at that level of covenant that we stand by each other's side and work through everything that we can. Part of this as well is for the protection of the community, starting with the children. Because children will grow up best when they have a healthy mom and dad. And I stressed healthy. There are times where uh, there's abuse going on, where there's very messy situations where divorce is the only answer. Okay, But what I'm telling you here is that the idea of covenant needs to be one that is upheld at the highest level. And if you're going through problems with your marriage, don't go through them alone. Invite in leaders from the church to come in and to walk alongside of you and to help you navigate. From my experience, some of the people who actually went through physical abuse were some of the people who refused to leave their marriage even though it was physically harming them. Those are situations where the church needs to come along and say, hey, for your own protection, you at least need to separate in these situations. But there are other times, and and a vast majority of the time, if the couples are willing to work through issues, the marriage can be not only spared, but can return to a thriving, or maybe a place where it never even was before. A covenant is designed to be a safe place for us to exist and to live. And when we have that covenant of marriage, that promise between a mom and a dad, between a husband and a wife who are going to be there, it is an extremely safe place, not only in the marriage, but for the children and for the rest of the community as well to learn from and to grow from. And so some of the hardest aspects of marriage are expectations and covenants. And if you remember my friend Billy, who I talked about earlier, whose wife had Alzheimer's, if you would ask Billy or several others who I've met over the years whose spouses had been diagnosed with some type of dementia or other horrible illness, how they did it, most often the response I get is that they didn't make the decision to stand by their spouse when they heard the bad news. But rather, they believe firmly that they made the decision to stand by their spouse when they said, I do. When they made that covenant before God, in front of, at their wedding day, 
When they made the promise to be there for better, for worse, or for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, even when they were completely healthy, they recognized a day would come, and a day will come in your marriage and mine, and where sickness and health creeps in, where, where the, the sickness creeps in. That is the reality of marriage. So I just want to stress that we would be wise to teach our children regularly that marriage is to be for life. They're going to have plenty of exposure to divorce, to, to cohabitation, to different things out there. And, and the important thing is, is that they recognize that marriage is supposed to be for life, that the covenant relationship is supposed to be upheld by, following Christ, by, by believing Christians. We shouldn't expect non-Christians to uphold this, okay? We just shouldn't. Um, we don't expect non-Christians to do anything else um, before Christ. This is our response to Christ and receiving His covenant is to build a covenant of our own. And so the idea of covenant is very difficult, but it's, even it is not the most difficult part or the hardest part of marriage. The next thing we see here, and I believe it's in verse 4 or 5, um, I, I deleted the, uh, the note marker here in my notes, but um, Jesus goes on to teach them, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And so we see here that the next hardest aspect of marriage to understand is that of the definition. Because what we have seen in our culture is that we used to have a culture that had a, had a more historical, a more Christian definition of marriage, that that is now fading away. And a big part of that is because of our overemphasis on sexuality in our culture. We think that our sexual identity is our identity. And the reality is, is that our sexuality is just a small part of our overall identity. There was a bishop from Africa who came over uh, to America and was just observing about our culture. And he said, in Africa, we have sex. In America, you are obsessed with sex. And it is so true. And over the course of the last several decades, we have seen uh, that immorality has creeped into the church. It started with the sexual liberation movements in the 60s that led to heavy sexual exploration. This, in turn, weakened marriage to the point where divorce became rampant, and now to the point where our culture and marriage is no longer even defined between a man and a woman, and even today where our culture is teaching us that you can be whatever gender you want to be. That's not what Jesus teaches here. Now, I have a few thoughts now that I have your attention. <laughs> First, the definition of marriage throughout history um, has always been kind of crazy in the world's terms. Okay? We look back in the Old Testament, polygamy was rampant. We look in the cult culture of Rome, while they had marriage there, um, the reality is, is that the men were expected to go off other places and explore if you will, I'll just put it in simple terms that way, that the wife was simply for bearing children. That's a weird definition of marriage as well. In our own history, we've seen polygamy, and now we see all types of different uh, polyamory and all different types of definitions. We should expect that from the world. The reality is, is that historically speaking, it's been the church that has carried the mantle through example of healthy marriage, and we must return to that as well. We must recognize that, of course, the world is going to have different views of marriage, because if they're not walking with Christ, why would they have Christ's views on marriage? Second, we live in a pagan culture. While we love our country, 
The reality is, is that we cannot expect a culture to teach sexual, sexual ethics that lines up with our values. No matter what governments or schools teach, it is our responsibility as the church and as parents to teach sexual ethics in accordance with Scripture. That's our job. Next, and this is probably most importantly, okay? We are all sexually broken people. Can I get an amen to that? We are all sexually broken people. Some of us struggle with identity as a result of a broken aspect of our sexuality. Some of us struggle with lust. Some of us struggle with keeping commitments. Some of us struggle with all different types of things. But the reality is, is that every part of creation has been affected by the fall. And that includes our sexuality. That means that I am sexually broken, that you are sexually broken, and it ain't Marvin Gaye who's going to fix it, okay? We are all sexually broken people. And so when we as Christians address different things in our culture, it needs to be of a place of utter humility. It is not of a we are right and you are wrong, but that we believe that there is a truth and we are struggling to live it out ourselves, but we do believe that this truth does exist. It should come from a place of utter compassion. We should not speak of things sexually and our culture that are broken without a tear welling up in our eyes. Our culture should know that we are not trying to force our views upon them, but that we are brokenhearted for the brokenness that we see in our culture and the brokenness that we experience in our own lives. Finally, if we do nothing, if we say nothing to our kids or expect that a couple lessons a year at church on sexuality are enough, we are fools. They are being inundated by our culture about sexuality. Parents, we need to be having regular conversations with our kids about this because our kids are exposed to what the Bible uh, describes as sexual immorality from an early age, and they are bombarded by it. Two or three talks is not going to do it. It needs to be a regular conversation, and they need to see healthy examples. Okay. So the idea of definition is a very difficult aspect of marriage in today's world, but there's another aspect in here that is not easy either, and that is the idea of oneness. In Mark 10, verses 7 through 9, we see, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. That is part of what makes divorce so difficult. It is ripping apart something that God has designed to become one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And so I could talk about oneness, but I decided to let a great American theologian do so via video. So please watch this uh, very, very, very theologically informed video on oneness. Marriage is about growing old together. Marriage is about falling apart at the same time. That's what makes it special. You live long enough, the two of you become one good person. You become one. One can see, one can hear. One can walk, one can use their hands. You need each other. You have to go to movies together. One listens, one watches. You become a team. One got a good right hip, one got a good left hip, and you're balanced. They're so cute together. No, they fall down. <laughs> they need one another. 
I don't know, I think it's pretty tough to, to come up with a better definition than that when it comes to oneness, right? Uh, and, and the reality is, is that, I, well, I don't have a lot of time to talk about this today. The reality is, is that from the moment a marriage is consummated, uh, that, that's where the oneness really begins in so many ways. But then it, it goes on deeper from that to an idea of growing together. So where our weaknesses that we used to have, like our spouse fills a gap there, but we actually become better in those areas too, and it becomes a beautiful thing. Jack Nicholas, Columbus native, uh, his son just wrote a book on him, and one of the things he talked about was uh, Jack's marriage. Uh, and Jack, this spring, will be married to his bride for 61 years. Uh, and in there, his son talks about how uh, his, his mom and dad had this idea of marriage that was 95% give, 5% take. Now, I, I know that normally we talk about, hey, like uh, marriage is 100-100, not 50-50, right? Um, but like, this is a, just a different way of looking at it, saying like, if you go into marriage and say, hey, 95% of the time, I'm going to ask myself the question, how can I give something to my spouse in this area? And only 5% of the time, I'm going to be asking, how can I receive something in this area? Like, if you have both people working together in that, you will have a beautiful marriage. We could learn a lot from those examples of long-term marriage that have succeeded and thrived. But even oneness is not the hardest part of marriage. The hardest part of marriage is what we see in Mark 10, verse 5. Right as soon as they talk about the excuses for why people could possibly divorce, Jesus told them this. He said, he wrote this command, meaning Moses. Moses wrote this command for you because of the hardness of your hearts. Ouch. And this is the hardest part of marriage. The hardest part of marriage is the heart. It's, it's my heart. It's your heart. Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the source of life. Another translation says, it is the wellspring of life. And the reality is, is that if the hardest part of marriage is the heart, then we must work to make sure we do not develop hardened hearts. And when we do develop hardened hearts, which will happen, we must work at softening our hearts. I believe firmly that a hardened heart towards God also will equal a hardened heart towards your spouse. And even more importantly, the vice versa is true. But if you have a hardened heart towards your spouse, that will be lived out in some way towards a hardened heart towards God. So let me just give you three simple ways before we close today that we are to guard our hearts in marriage. I kept it real simple. It's healthy eating, exercise, and surgical intervention. First, healthy, healthy eating. What are you feeding yourself regarding marriage? Do you have a high cholesterol diet when it comes to marriage where you're being fed things that aren't true by our culture? When you look to examples of marriage, are you looking to Hollywood for the glamour? Or are you looking to the couple who's been married for 61 years and is still fighting it out? Is still thriving in marriage? We need to make sure that we're feeding ourselves the right things. Some of that comes with our counsel. Are we surrounding ourselves with healthy marriages in our church? Or are we listening to the person that's been divorced four times in our office telling us, well, you should just leave that loser? The reality is, is that that will affect you if that's the only voice that you're hearing. What are you eating how are you eating? How do you have a healthy diet concerning marriage? Are you continuing to feed yourself by reading good books on marriage about how you can thrive together? Read them with your spouse. Talk about them. 
Don't put them up on the mirror for them to read. That's passive aggressiveness. That doesn't work, okay? But build that atmosphere in your marriage of health where it's just an expectation. Of course, we're going to grow closer together. Of course, we're going to talk about these things. That's part of a healthy diet. Next is exercise. How are you working to keep your heart healthy in marriage? Are you regularly going on date nights? That's been extremely difficult with COVID going on, hasn't it? It was extremely difficult for us moving to a new location here uh, where we, we didn't have building babysitters right away. You know what we learned? Hey, if we ask someone to watch our kids, they will. It's amazing. What are you doing to keep your heart healthy in marriage? The reality is, is that the, the, the most difficult years are those years when we have young kids in the house. Because so much of our attention is turned towards developing the kids that often the marriage partners find themselves further apart than ever. And you've got to keep nurturing that. Practice that for your kids. Our kids know that, that, hey, that mommy and daddy have mommy and daddy time where we go and where we pray together. And sometimes some other things happen too, and that's a good thing, okay? I'm going to tell you, practice sex with your spouse. Amen, guys? All right? uh, Come on, come on, help me out, guys. Yeah, 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 there you go, there you go. All right, because, you, you know, that's just a part of oneness. You, you need that. You need that intimacy with each other. And, and honestly, that's a pretty good gauge to see how everything else is going, too. Because if you can't connect sexually, it might be because there's something else broken in your marriage you need to work on. And when a good marriage is good, mm-hmm, yep, yep, it's a good thing, isn't it? All right, finally, finally, excuse me, surgical intervention. Are you at the point in your marriage where you need serious help? Because the reality is, is that most marriages will get there at some point in time. There, there's one part, uh, sometimes it's one person in the marriage um, is just having trouble committing. Sometimes it's both. Um, sometimes the one person who's had trouble committing finally pulls it together at the threat of the other person leaving. But at that point in time, the other person has such a hardened heart that they can't receive the other person back. This is where we need the church to come alongside and to help people. This is where we need good counselors to work through it. Hey, listen, there's no shame in going to counseling. My parents' marriage was saved because of counseling. I wouldn't be here as a preacher today without that. I firmly believe that. And the reality is is that counseling isn't that things are falling apart. Counseling is that we want to keep things together. We want to make them healthy again. And you might be at the point of surgical intervention, and that's okay. There's no shame in that. Do you know if you come and talk to me about your marriage that, you know, you're not going to make me fall off my seat? And, Whoa, I've never heard that before. I mean, trust me, I've heard pretty much everything at this point in time. And it doesn't shock us because we're all sexually broken people. We're all sinful people. You might be at that point of surgical intervention, and that's okay. We're here to love you and to not shame you. We're here to help you put the wheels back on the bus and make it stronger than ever. Remember Billy, that old farmer from Ashland, Illinois, who taught me so much about marriage? We have a rich history of friendship. I'm one that I can tell story after story about Billy's example in my life. I actually preached his wife's funeral. Uh, and then after I preached his wife's funeral, he called me one day. He made me promise that I would do his funeral too. Called me one day and said, remember that promise that, I made you, or that you made me? I said, oh no, what's going on, Billy? He said, well, I'm getting married. I need you to do my wedding instead. Um, 
And he married her uh, and uh, stayed married to her uh, until he passed away, and I did his funeral then. But at one point, uh, his wife, Chrissy, uh, was in about her 10th year of Alzheimer's. She was at the point where she couldn't speak anymore. She could only respond to basic commands, and frankly, she looked pretty lost. But my grandpa, my grandpa Moulton Fulton, that is his real name, Moulton Fulton. My middle name is, my full name is Dustin Moulton Fulton, just in case you're curious. He just went by Moldy, because when your name's Moulton, why not? He built a new barn. as big 60 by 100 machine shed. And back home, whenever someone built a new barn, you'd have to have a big party to break it in. And so since my Aunt Judy had her own band, they decided that they would have a square dance in the barn as the barnwarming party. Everybody brought food. Everybody brought their square dancing shoes. And I was the youngest one there by about 50 years, it felt like. But there in the middle of it all, Billy and Chrissy were sitting there on a hay bale as everybody else square danced. And Billy sat there faithfully by her side, holding Chrissy's hand. But there in the barn that night, in the midst of all of that, at some point, my Aunt Judy decided to play a slow song. And when she played the slow song, Billy stood up as he had done through all 50-plus years of their marriage, held out his hand, and asked his wife if she would dance with him. And even though she couldn't speak, and even though she couldn't take care of herself, even though she couldn't feed herself, she could still dance. And it was the most beautiful dance I've ever seen. More beautiful than a bride and groom dancing on their wedding day is the dance of the couple who's been married for over 50 years, holding each other up as they have done throughout their marriage. I remember that moment like it was yesterday and looking at Chrissy, and instead of a lost look on her face, she had one of peace. And looking at Billy's face and seeing a look of pure delight. And I think it was like looking into the face of Jesus. Because that's what healthy marriages should ultimately do, isn't it? They should point us to Jesus. When we look at the healthiest of marriage, when our kids see us, we should be showing them Jesus in every way possible, especially through marriage. Father, we, we just recognize that marriage is tough. It's, it's hard, and, and this whole deal with the heart, Lord, is extremely difficult. And so we just we come before you, Lord. Um, I, I, I just want to lift up those who are going through an exceptionally difficult moment in their marriage those who are on the verge of giving up, those who are looking for hope but just don't know where to turn. And so, Lord, we pray for peace. We pray for healing. We pray for hope. We pray, Lord, for boldness to ask for help. We pray for gentle graces in their marriage that help soften their hearts towards one another rather than harden them. Father, we pray for those who are single today. We pray for their strength. We pray for their witness. Lord, we recognize that you have not called everybody to be married. You have called many people to be single. And whether that's for a season or for a life, Lord, we pray for a bold, strong witness through this season of their life. 
And Lord, we also just lift up those of you, uh, those of us who are in marriages that, that are healthy but have a crisis right around the corner. We pray, Lord, that we would not wait until the crisis to strengthen our marriage, but that we would strengthen it now so that when the day of crisis does come, that we would be prepared to endure. Lord, thank you for loving the church by giving yourself to us. We pray that in marriage, we would be willing to do the same for each other. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.